Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 12. We're actually going to do verses 1 through 11, uh, not 1 through 8. John chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord. And to remind you, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God in so much as it agrees with the word of God. So this is God speaking to you. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word. We know your word is perfect. It's inspired by you. It's useful for correct reproof. Rebuke, training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good deed in Christ Jesus. We do ask that this would now be accomplished by the work of your Spirit within us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand and believe, and we might be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the great joys in life is watching kind of young couples as they're in the the early stages of love, as they're Twitter-pated with one another and and growing in that affection prior to marriage. And one of the great joys, the, the kind of comedy of it, really, is listening to the terms they call each other. Like the names that they accidentally let slip in public. Like, you you actually call her that all the time? Really? That's kind of comical. I can't believe that. You would actually say that, but okay, it's fine. And I guess as we're married longer, we keep those things. We call each other honey and deer and all kinds of wonderful things, but it's kind of comical to watch, particularly in those, those earliest stages of romance. I will not mention some of the embarrassing things I'm sure I said. In youth ministry, though, it was also fun to watch 
how a similar function happened, not so much connected to romance, but connected to young men. How they had nicknames for each other that served the same purpose. Now, usually those nicknames were pretty much awful all the time, you know, ugly face or things like that, but they interestingly served the same function. All of these nicknames, whether affectionately given in romance and love or uh, amongst men teasing one another, they really function as the language of love. Like doing youth ministry, you could tell a new young man had made it as a part of the group when the guys gave him some sort of nickname. You know, when he became, you know, Seabass or Big Owl or whatever it was, Sasquatch, we had one of those. You know, whatever, you know, whatever it was, that's when he knew, oh, I'm welcome. They love me. They've picked up the vocabulary of love. In this passage here, we're going to see exactly what the vocabulary of Christian love looks like. It's not nicknames. It's not calling each other Sasquatch, thankfully. Um, it, It is something different, but it is the language of Christian love. But in order to kind of get the language of Christian love, this is actually one of those passages that the setting, the historical setting is unbelievably important. Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. In chapter 11, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And that is, in I would say many ways, the tipping point of what will ensure that he gets killed. He's been claiming to be God all of his ministry. And so the Pharisees hate him because he says he is God and they resent him for it. But the Sadducees, the Sadducees are the majority faction. They're the ones who control the political power. They don't really care. He can say whatever he wants to say. They're not bothered by it. They're not bothered with him until resurrection happens. And that's problematic because they don't believe in resurrection. So Lazarus is a walking, talking inconvenience for them. So now Jesus has successfully angered the Pharisees, the minority, and the Sadducees, the majority. So which of the Jews are mad? (laughs) All of those in power. You see at the end of 11, they seek to kill him and he kind of flees away out into a town called Ephraim. He goes out into the country and disappears for a little while. He goes underground, so to speak. He disappears from the limelight. And chapter 12 takes us back into kind of his last real interaction before the big week. We know kind of piecing the Gospels together. He's probably heads to this meal coming directly from Zacchaeus' house, most likely. He may have made a stop or two en route, but it's most likely coming from there. And it's six days before the Passover. This is at the beginning of Holy Week. It's the week before, so to speak. It's kind of like the week before Christmas or the week before uh, Easter. And they gather together at Bethany. We know this is a big meal together. It's a, a big deal. It's a big feast. They have the 12 disciples, Jesus, Lazarus, And it takes place at the house of Simon, who was a leper. We find that out from Matthew and Mark, who tell the same story. So there's 15 men eating together, and at this time, women didn't eat with them. It was separated and segregated based uh, upon gender, not so much skin color or anything of the sort, but gender. Gender. 
And so uh, John here tells us kind of the details of what's happening. So the men are lounging at the table with Martha taking care of them. And the way the table worked is it was shaped like a giant U. And you reclined at the table. They didn't have chairs or they didn't use chairs. They kind of lounged on their side. So you would you know, kind of put your elbow on your pillow, your feet away from the table, and your you know, one good hand so you could reach off the table, grab your piece of bread, dip it in the dish, and then eat it. So if this were the table here, you'd be kind of elbow on the side, feet out from there. And there's a very rigid seating system to show who was the most important and who was the least important. And it was unbelievably well-ordered. For those of you that, when you were young, took like the cotillion classes, I guess, or whatever, the, you know, the, the ultra high-end how to eat with proper etiquette, you know, when you have a meal with seven forks, what order do you use them in? That is a very good kind of reflection of how Jewish culture worked. The meals were very rigid in their propriety, in their um, manners, and in their etiquette. Certain things were just not tolerated, one of which is going to happen in just a moment. Now, in a standard meal like this, you would come in and be welcomed into the house. You would probably present the the host with a guest, I mean, the the host with a present of a sort. And the host would have their lowest of low human beings come and wash your feet. And there's a significant reason for that because, one, feet are always nasty and disgusting. I think mine still everybody's here. We're all gross. Feet are gross. But in this culture, feet were particularly gross because they were walking in a land that is very arid. So the the dust doesn't stay packed red clay like here. I mean, here it packs down and it turns into kind of baked bricks in the sun. There it turns into dust. And then added to that already kind of existent dust, you don't have plumbing. And you have lots of wild animals And the easiest place for all of them to be kind of transported to and fro is down the roads. And your primary mode of transportation is by foot, covered in sandal, not sock and shoe. So you can kind of draw the, kind of connect the dots to see. Feet are nasty in general, but these feet are particularly gross. Because these are feet that have been wearing sandals all of their life. They have calluses. I mean, some of y'all embarrassed by your calluses. They're nothing like these, Right? All kinds of calluses. They don't have fancy toenail clippers like we do or toenail polish or anything like that. And these are feet that have collected all of the dust and the poo from the animals and everything. And it clings to them and it stinks and it smells. It's why normal Romans didn't do this. They had their slaves do this or uh, those that had been rejected in the house, those that were being punished. You didn't actually do anything like this because it was disgusting. Then mix on top of that, this is a time in human history where they have not yet invented deodorant and they do not yet have plumbing where you can bathe regularly. And it is rather warm. In fact, by that I mean it's really quite hot. So you can kind of, again, draw a feeling of what eating in this time would have been like. Many of us would have been much thinner. (laughs) Eating in a warm, hot room with people who reek of B.O. or worse things and nasty feet everywhere. And then when it comes time to eat, they take their nasty hand, they tear off nasty bread, and they dip it in nasty food, and then they double dip and triple dip. 
by our standards, it's been, it's pretty gross. I'm not going to lie. And so they have this meal in a room that reeks with feet that are nasty, with 15 dudes who have been walking, walking for days. But in the midst of the nastiness, it's punctuated with joy. This is a feast that's thrown in the honor of Jesus, and you get the impression that this was probably the first time they had been able to get back together since Lazarus had been raised. Remember, Jesus raises Lazarus, and then he has to flee because they're going to kill him. Lazarus also has to disappear because they're going to kill him, and everybody kind of scatters. This is the first time they can get the whole gang back together, and this is the like, we should celebrate, he's not dead anymore. That's kind of this meal. That's the tone of the meal. Like, we should celebrate he's not dead anymore. And the guy's house that they're meeting at is, oh, by the way, we should celebrate he's not a leper anymore. He's not dead anymore either. So miracles on both sides in this regard. And everybody's like, we should just be excited. And so they sit down to the meal in this unbelievably rigid system of etiquette with what we would consider kind of nastiness all around them. And Mary does something that is genuinely shocking. And you, you kind of have to think, at what point did the, the men in the room stop talking and just go like, whoa. She walks in with a one-pound jar. It holds a pound. It's, at that time, 12 ounces. It's an alabaster jar, most likely. It's kind of probably kind of large at the bottom with a long, thin neck that's been sealed. It's been sealed for a long time. Because this jar is most likely from either India or Tibet. It's the only place in the world where this stuff grows. They pick it in the highlands of India or the highlands of Tibet. They pick this uh, one specific plant. They distill, like crush it and draw all the oil out of it to make it unbelievably fragrant. It's super, super, super strong and just stupidly expensive. You can buy it on Amazon for $60 today. But as she walks in with this kind of alabaster jar, you don't uncork these things. They're not designed for that. You shatter them. You take the neck and you just snap it off. You break it so that it's unrecoverable at this point. And then she proceeds while Jesus is laying there to anoint him. Matthew and Mark tell us she anoints his head and his shoulders. John tells us that she anoints his feet. She takes 12 ounces of oily perfume and anoints Christ. I just want you to kind of pause and think for a moment. Most of you that use cologne or perfume, how many ounces is in your little spray bottle? They sell, what, three or four ounces at a time? If you get the big one, it's maybe five ounces. She's taking 12 ounces of this stuff and anointing Christ. She pours it on his head and smooths his hair. She pours it on his face to to cleanse his face. It functioned medicinally as well. They didn't have lotion the same way we do. And then I, I have to think, much to everybody's just complete and total dismay, just genuine shock, she pours it on his feet and begins to rub his feet to wash the crud off And then she undoes her hair, which was just 
absolutely never done. Women never let their hair down. She undoes her hair and proceeds to wipe the excess off of his feet with her hair. And you have to think, the the room, even though filled with disciples and those that love Jesus, there would have been an amazing change as it takes place. She walks in and with the bottle, and they're like, ooh, this is going to be good. It's going to smell nice instead of stinky like all you clowns. And she breaks it, and then you're like, oh, that's nice. It doesn't smell like rotten man. This is good. And then she pours it on Jesus' head, and then you're like, wow, this is really different. And then she pours it on his feet, and it would have been shocking. And then she would have undone her hair and begin to dry his feet. And it would have been genuinely astonishing. You see, Mary is illustrating a point for saints today that is unbelievably important. It's a point that Paul was making in Romans 12 that is presumed from the larger part of the book. It's the point introduced in the introduction, and it is this. For the saints of God, generosity is the language of love. It's not calling each other, you know, Bigfoot face or things like that. Generosity is the language of Christian love. When we find out from Judas, who has a pretty good eye for money, we know he's been pilfering it from the purse that this is worth 300 days wages put in kind of common terms that's 15 months of salary this one bottle 15 months of your salary is spent in one moment on jesus and the consequence is as you would guess the smell is strong and it doesn't just stay on christ it begins to spread and spread and spread and spread it's an oil-based perfume. Think about if you ever tried to like change the oil or check the oil in your car without enough paper towels. Where does the oil go? Everywhere. It spreads. It contaminates. You're like, how did I get oil inside my ear? Doesn't matter. You did. It goes everywhere. Likewise, the same thing happens. And she, in just a few brief moments, gives us a glimpse into beautifully and purely what the heart of the saint looks like. It's one of the defining attributes of who God's people are is that we are to be loving people and generosity is the language of love. I mean, we see it in her. She gives generously. She's no thought for compensation, no thought for expense. I mean, this is just shockingly expensive. I mean, just average salary in America is, what, just under you know, $60,000, $90,000 present, just up in flames? I mean, that, 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 in kind of modern language, that's a lot of money. And by her standards, well spent. You see, it's actually the same language that Paul picked up in Romans 12. You may not have caught it exactly, but he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And this is your spiritual act of worship. What does it mean to be a believer? Well, it means that as we are creatures of love, we're designed for it. We're to be creatures of generosity. Creatures of happy, delighted generosity. 
And again, I love thinking about this from the context of young marrieds or uh, from my days in youth ministry. It's it's so fun to watch with young people particularly. The things they would, you know, uh, again, young married couples, the things they're willing to give each other because, oh, just so blinded. Asking nothing in return, constantly giving, and excited about that gift. Generosity is the language of love. Well, we see that that's not the case for everybody. Mary gives this astonishing gift, this just unbelievably awkward gift. It would have, by the way, for the record, come at the expense of her dignity. Not only did it cost you know, 15 months wages for all intents and purposes, it comes at the expense of her dignity because she had to do two things in order to accomplish this that were completely and inalterably undignified. One, she had to let her hair down, and then two, she had to use her hair to actually touch someone else's feet. I mean, that, that would be the equivalent of like kind of using your hair to clean somebody's toilet today. Like that's bad news. You do not do this. It comes at the expense of her dignity. But then further, as this, this gift, this tremendous gift is happening, Judas begins to grumble. And John kind of spoils it for us a little bit. Oh, by the way, he's the one who betrays Jesus. But you see, Judas's grumble is surprising, actually. Why is she doing this? This is a waste. Why is she wasting so much money? Do you not realize what kind of ministry we could have done with this much money? I mean, this is 15 months wages. We could have done so much good. You see, he's actually illustrating the kind of opposite point. Christian heart, the redeemed heart, the transformed heart, is it it uses generosity as the language of love. The unregenerate heart, the fallen heart, the, the pagan heart, uses morality as a pretension for good. It uses goodness to pretend, but not actually be. He uses goodness to, to make it look good, to make it seem good, to make it seem delightful, to make it seem appealing or appetizing, but in reality it is no different. I mean, Judas says, look, we could have done so much good. We could have improved so many things. We could have helped so many people. It sounds so right. John lets us in on a little secret. Though. Oh, by the way, the reason why he was saying that is because he was stealing the money. It wasn't going to help so many people in so many good ways because a lot of it would have ended in his pocket and it would have helped him. I mean, 300 coins, that's a lot to keep track of. How many of them can go disappearing, go missing without anybody noticing? I bet you at least 25, 30. That's a month and a half's wages. That's not too bad. I mean, steal a month's wages without getting caught, it would be easy. You see what he uses, he's doing is using morality to pretend at goodness, at righteousness, at love, at generosity. He's using the same kind of language, but he's a pretender. Jesus has no room for this, though, as he quickly squashes him and squashes all complaints with the most, I think, just kind of genuine and mind-blowing kind of part of this. Leave her alone. There's a rebuke for you. And then follows with, and to be fair, this next sentence is really difficult to translate. 
Jesus uses shorthand. He kind of, again, switches to his uh, nicknames, so to speak. And he says, in essence, she's been saving this for the day of my burial. This type of gift, this, the, the nard being poured out, the perfume, this was a, a thing they put on dead bodies to keep them from reeking terribly as they mourned. To keep, this gives you an idea of how strong this smell is. Right? A, a dead body that's not been properly cared for in a very hot and dry climate is going to get rather stinky very quickly. And so they would apply this to the bodies to help take care of the smell while they mourned until they put them in the tomb. Jesus explains to her, uh, to all of them, leave her alone. She's been saving this for when I die. Cluing them in on something that would happen very quickly. <laughs> she saved it for the right date. She doesn't know she saved it for the right date. She doesn't know she's given him a gift. Hey, Lazarus is alive. I'm happy. I'm so pleased. Lazarus is alive. I'm going to give you this massive gift. And Jesus says, look, she's giving it to the right person. She's giving it to the walking dead. She saved it for my burial, for it is designed for the dead. She's given it to the right man. You see, Jesus is here actually explaining, though they do not fully understand, that generosity is the language of love for the saints, because generosity is the language of love for God first. Why is Mary able to give this tremendous gift? Why is she able to to spend a year and change his wages on one moment, one meal? Can can you imagine that spending? Let's just a year's salary at one meal. And Jesus is explaining, look, the reason why this is okay is because what's going to happen next week. The reason why it's okay to spend like this on me now is because of what I'm accomplishing next week. I've already stepped inside time and space as divinity becoming human and retaining divinity. And I've lived perfection all the way through. I've never sinned. I haven't fallen short of any good deed in any way. I have been perfect up to this point. And just a few days, I will give my life for her and for you and for all of my people. And if that weren't enough, I will not stay dead. I will purchase for them not just payment for sin, but also victory to live without sin. So that they will be able to have the table, a mark of his death, and celebrate it on Sunday, the day of resurrection. John's exactly actually kind of spoiled the, the plot, so to speak, at the very beginning when he's told us we love because God has loved us first. We, we, we know this pattern. God is love. And therefore, his language is the language of generosity. And to think about all of the things that he has given us. He's given us existence in the first place. He's given us the ability to make real and genuine decisions. We're not robots. And then even in the midst of our bad and poor and wicked decisions, he's given us mercy after mercy after mercy, even to the point of calling us to believe in him. That effectual calling going out and to think for some of us that calling happened when we were so young, we have no recollection of it. I don't remember being called to Christ and I'm so thankful. Some of you remember your calling and you remember it as this beautiful day of just glory. 
as joy cracked into the world of gloom that you had lived in for so long. Some of you, you actually remember that you ran from that calling and the Lord showed his generosity to keep you even in the midst of your running. He let you go for a time, but like a dog on a leash, you only could make it so far. His generosity poured out to us all in Christ on the cross paying for sin, but even since, as we talked about in Sunday school, with the resurrection that he would be buried, that we might be forgiven, but he would not stay that way. That we might have victory, that we might have joy, that we might have transformation even now. It's like, do we look forward to heaven? Yes, we should, and we do. But part of so many of those blessings are already here. You see, the generosity is the language of love for Christ. His generosity knows no bounds. He gives his life unjustly for rotten, wicked people that don't even fully understand what he's doing. But it is generosity nonetheless. And again, John, in the standard way, he tells the story. The standard way he includes this in the book. He tells this magnificent portrait of Jesus and then takes us to 9 through 11. You'll see a pattern for how he's telling the story, isn't he? He tells of amazing things that Jesus has done and then what does he immediately follow it with? You need to make a decision about Christ. What does he say? 9 through 11. Oh, look, the crowd learns that Jesus is there and they begin to gather. They, they find out that they're hiding in the village. So the crowd begins to show up and they're all trying to pack in so they can see Lazarus, so they can see Jesus. And then the Sadducees find out that Lazarus is there and they're like, well, he's an inconvenience. We got to make him disappear too. So now we're not just killing the guy who says that he's God, but we're killing the guy who literally the only thing he's ever done was be resurrected and we can't handle that so we're going to kill him for that and the reason all of this is happening is because people verse 11 the very end were believing in Jesus you see John again pushes the reader to this point where we have to contemplate what will I do with Jesus again what will I do with Christ And there's categories for how we should respond to him. If you're an unbeliever, uh, John has called you over and over and over and over and over and over again. What are you supposed to do? Receive his calling. Repent and believe. Come to know him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Experience the generosity of God. I'm sure that's some in the room. More likely, members of the church, we're believers. But I would suggest probably many of us are in that stage where we remember what, well, we'll put it this way, we remember what it was like to be newlyweds, but we've kind of lost some of the delight. We remember God's generosity, but sometimes it can feel a bit far off. We can think, well, I I mean, I know Jesus is special and all, but I just kind of, I mean, I don't know. I guess I just, I wish I I thought of him more highly. 
I guess I, I just wish I would think of him just more special in my life. And I would contend, brothers and sisters, that this passage is one of those great challenges for the saints of God. Mary does something here that is spectacular. And certainly we are not all called to replicate her you know, method here. I don't have Jesus' feet in front of me, and I don't really have enough hair to dry it. Some of you have less than I. (laughs) We're not called to follow that same mold, but we are actually called to contemplate. What does generosity look like for me as God's people? As a part of God's people, as a, a child of God, what does generosity look like for me? And and honestly, I kind of give you two kind of aspects of this. One is your generosity, by and large, will be a reflection of how great you think the other person is. I mean, young moms, how much do they give to their children? (laughs) They give them absolutely everything. Why? Because they are their world. They love that child. They delight in that child. They give up sleep, untold hours of sleep. They give up all kinds of comfortability. They give up all of the comforts of life to make sure that child exists because they love them. And the generosity doesn't even cross their minds to not do it. Sadly, for many of us, our children are more important than our God because we begrudge him the generosities we give him. We don't begrudge our children. We love them. They're right in front of us. They're adorable. They're cute. We like them. We'll give them anything. We want to make them happy. Our God who made us and redeemed us, well, I could take or leave him sometimes. I mean, we're never that crass. I would challenge you, God's people, to contemplate how are you in your generosity? What does it show about your opinion of your Savior? And then secondly is to challenge you specifically for the realm of generosity. It's the church. We don't have physical feet to wash anymore. Well, you do. They're just not Christ per se. You'll notice actually the transition that Paul made in Romans 12. I set you up for this. Therefore, offer your bodies, you know, sacrifices to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Where does he go in verse 3? Think of yourself... Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but regard yourself with sober judgment. Why? Because the body of Christ. Why should you not think of yourself more highly than you ought? Because of the church. Because your generosity now is worked out in a different arena. It's not worked out to Christ physically per se. It's worked out amongst his saints. It's worked out in nursery. It's worked out in Sunday school. It's worked out in telling the children not to run after worship and run over people. It's worked out in giving of yourself to this place, to these people, to one another. For we are all one body. Why? Is it because you don't go to heaven if you're not doing? No. Is it because this is one of those things that we can do to earn our way? No. It's because generosity is the language of God. Generous enough to make creation, generous enough, generous enough to redeem creation, generous enough to have eternal life at the end. He's, it is the language of God. And if it's the language of God, it certainly ought to be the language of the saints. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess our sins. We love you a lot. 
You have made us and you have saved us. We do. We love you. But so often our generosity is quite poor. And I I have to confess, so often I would find myself giving Judas' response far more than Mary's. What a waste. It could have been spent so much differently. We do confess that we so often show the heart of the ungrateful and not a heart of gratitude. And so we ask that you would work in us by the power of your spirit to transform how we think and how we feel and how we act. That in this way, in just a small bit more, we might show your glory and your character as we are transformed. For Christ's sake, amen. Mm -hmm.